I should turn in your Bibles this evening, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 21. I'll just read a handful of verses there at the beginning of this book. Uh, one of the challenges that a pastor faces when he's preparing certain sections of Scripture to preach is, uh, what in the world am I going to do with this text? I would say I've thought that many times, especially when I'm preaching through the Pentateuch, especially in the book of Leviticus. And then there's sections in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is how I want you to think when we are moving through certain sections of Deuteronomy. When the king of Israel was ordained and installed in that high office, he was required by the Lord to move through the law and to write for himself as a kind of commentary his own summary of the law for this reason, that he might know how to apply it. Now here's a hypothetical. If you were made king for a day, and what a day that would be, <laughs> how would you govern what would be the foundation and the source of the laws that you would seek to establish and impose upon the people? What is that source? What is that fount? My argument, the contention that I would give, is that the scriptures are that fount of righteousness, of goodness, of truth, that though we in this world that is plagued by sin will not govern perfectly, and the people we govern are not perfect, We'll do what we can and the best that we are able to bring about peace in the land. It is God's intention as he is moving Israel into the land of promise that they may live there in holiness that they may not be spat out. The goal is to stay and to stay well. Deuteronomy chapter 21, I'll be reading the first 14 verses. You will understand the challenge of these things, even as I read, if in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. A heifer, if you're wondering is a cow that has not ever given birth. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders... Of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord. For your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. And when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails 
and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, uh, it is right that we seek wisdom, for we find even now in this modern age uh, laws that are unfamiliar to us. Perhaps they are remote to us because we are not the students of Scripture that we ought to be, or perhaps they are remote to us simply because they do not reflect our own laws. And yet, these were given by you for our good. And not only for Israel as a nation holy and chosen to be your priesthood upon the earth, but even in the age of the church, there is some measure of correlation, of wisdom, and life to be found here on these pages of Scripture. O Lord, give us the humility to hear and to believe and to go forth walking in righteousness, that not only we might be blessed, but the nations might be blessed as we minister your gospel. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. There's two points that I want to make this evening. The first covers those first few verses, the first nine verses, on unsolved murders. And then the second those next few verses, 10 through 14, about marrying female captives. The first point that I want to make is under this heading, unsolved murders. It's really creative, I know. Where did I get that point? And the second, war and marriage. War and marriage. Let's look at this first point this evening. And I, I want to tell you right now, there are some passages of Scripture that a pastor may try to dress up a lot and try to present to you as something new and epic and trendy. We're talking about laws that have been with men for thousands of years. And if you are people, not only of the book, that is the scripture, but the Westminster standards, one of the things that our standards tell us is that as we move through the law of the Old Testament, as it relates to the case laws that are used to show how we are to apply the moral law of God, there is a general equity that applies even today. What is it that applies? That's what I want us to look at. And not only that, but there is a point that is to be made and understood regarding all of Scripture and all of Revelation that points us to the lawgiver, who is Christ Jesus. This is the same Redeemer in the New Testament who walked with Israel, delivered them out of Egypt, and is giving them this law. How are you to live? Well... As it relates to unsolved murders, what was Israel to do? Now, a global, broader point. All of these laws were given for Israel to live in the land in peace. And so, we see that in the very beginning, if in the land. And though this is a land flowing with milk and honey, it is a land like any other land that is touched by sin. Because wherever men go... We bring the curse with us. And though we may be a community of saints, however sanctified or not, there will be times in which we are, well, it is inescapable to feel the effects of the fall. And there is one such occasion that God is showing Israel, and that is this occasion where, let's say you're walking down the road, someone is dead in the ditch, there is no evidence 
as to how or who killed this man. Well, maybe how, but who? What do you do? How does the community not suffer and be absolved of the guilt? For every sin must be paid for. And so whenever we look at the law of God, I want you to think not only of the particular case, but what is informing that case. And here it is, thou shalt not kill. And if the community comes across someone who has been killed and they don't know who did the killing, these are the steps they are to follow. Look at verse 1. There's a man lying in the open country and it is not known who killed him. Then here is the process. Then your elders and your judges. Now these are civilian positions. These are those who will carry out the investigation. These are men who have been chosen by the tribes to act in wisdom and to deliberate through trial and investigation and the hearing of witness testimony and ultimately the carrying out of punishment. That is what they are doing. There is biblical warrant for civilian positions in the helping of solving crimes. It is part of biblical society both then and now. And so, verse 2, these elders and judges come out to the scene of the crime and they cannot determine who did it. Perhaps they, don't have, they didn't have the forensic aptitude that we have now. And so what do they do? They go to the nearest surrounding city by measuring the distance of the crime scene to whatever cities are around it. And they go to the nearest city and upon that city is the burden of making an offering. And so what you find is the acting of the civilian authority along with religious authority, and they come together for the purpose of dealing with this particular crime. And so some of the principles that we see at play here is that every crime, though it is unbeknownst to us who the perpetrator of that crime is, is known by God. And God is the judge of all the earth. There is nothing that is outside of his sight, but for men who are not sovereign, who cannot see all things, who have to rely upon the power of investigation and deduction, there are times where it is undetermined who the assailant was. And in this particular case, a sacrifice was to be made. Now, this was not a bloody sacrifice, like the sacrifice at the altar because this is a sacrifice that is made on behalf of the people who are there that God might not visit upon them the blood of the one who was killed. And while they are there, those who are in the city testify, by God's grace, truthfully, we had no hand in the murder of this person. And that sacrifice, in essence, speaks of God's passing over covering over the sins of that populace of that city who testified we had no hand in this murder. But what about the murderer? Does he go free? Well, yes and no. In this life, yes. But in the life of the world to come, is it a sin for which he has not paid blood guilt? If he has not repented, then blood will one day be required of him. And when I speak in that way, I speak of the final judgment. 
But as far as we are able, there are times where we are helpless to institute true justice. Killers go free. But for the Christian, for the one who believes in the sovereignty of God and his wrath and judgment, not all killers will go free. In fact, this principle rises to the surface that we ultimately, as it relates to final judgment and justice, rest upon the all-seeing sovereign knowledge of God who does all things well and all things right. And so we see this heifer. The neck of this heifer is broken and it is brought into this essentially what you might call a virgin field, an unplowed field, a holy field and a holy sacrifice is made. And it is there where we read that the people, the elders, verse 6, of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley and they shall testify, our hands, speaking on behalf of the people of that city, did not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people so their blood guilt would be atoned for. In essence, what they're saying is, we had nothing to do with this. And so the blood guilt of the murderer is not called or is not placed upon those people. And look at verse 9. It is through atonement, I'm adding that part, verse 9, that you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now that is justice. It is not full and final justice. But in fact, there is no full and final justice until we arrive at the cross of Jesus Christ. And every slain man or woman or child that laid in an open country area in the history of mankind, whose assailant was unknown, every crime, every sin, every act of violence, every false word, every vain thought is dealt with through the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no injustice in the world as God is on the throne. And so when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, what we are to see is that every sin ever committed by those whom God forgives the blood guilt of is laid upon Christ Jesus in his judgment. But for all, who bear their own guilt, they are not washed or covered by the blood of Christ. God judges all men through a single, ultimate sacrifice. And that God will purify the people is a distinct and clear reality in all of the laws of Israel, and it ought to be in our laws as well. There is this view to a God who forgives the blood guilt of sinners, but only through the work of an atoning sacrifice. That is ultimately where all our sins are dealt with. And this is how we can not only rest upon the perfect judgment of God, but we can be content with that reality because we are those who, though deserving judgment, have actually been shown mercy. And the overflow of your gratitude 
for the undeserving merit and favor of God should cause us to be tempered in our hot-headed pursuit against ungodliness. Even the most vile of sinners must be dealt with justly. We are not like the nations, but we are an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, an arm for an arm, a hand for a hand. We are people who delight in justice. And God has chosen in his temperance, in his mercy, in his patience to reveal his justice through the cross of his son. And so, blood guilt is inescapable. The shedding of blood is of absolute necessity. The question is this. Will it be yours or Christ's for you? And that is what God is teaching Israel. There is not only the call for even temporary punishment, but there is always holding this sort of th- this idea of redemption is held out to the people of Israel that God will, even in his forbearance and kindness, forgive even the most hardened of sinners. And so ultimately, God judges all men through the cross. That is what we learn here in these first nine verses, that even in a situation, and we see this a lot, we see court cases that are clearly, they don't end in justice. Or we see investigations that remain open. If you ever talk to a detective, they're going to have that file, that part in their filing cabinet of unsolved cases. There is no section like that in God's courtroom. He sees it all. And our only hope is that God, who sees all things, he sees far beyond what we see, he sees it all, is a God who is a God of justice and mercy, and he will do what is right. All right, that was quick. Second point. This is, I guess, perhaps an even more delicate point, and so an even shorter point. (laughs) This is about marrying female captives. Second point, war and marriage. Now, we looked at this last week. It's a, it itself is a, is a tough passage about laws concerning warfare. And there are two different types of war that Israel was to fight. There were wars that they fought with those tribes who were far off from them, a kind of civilian warfare or a war regarding the state. And then there were those holy wars where Israel was to go and lay to waste and commit to fire everything. Well, this, of course, applies to those previous sets of wars where they would go to a city and they would go to that city and they would offer terms of peace. If that city did not accept the peaceful terms, then they were to go and they were to kill every soldier. Now, if that city made peace with Israel, then Israel was to go and make that entire city, in essence, slaves or servants of the nation. This is not unlike what we are doing as the church. We are going into the nations, and what we are saying to the nations as a spiritual entity, as a body of Jesus Christ, is serve Christ. He is your master. And we are incorporating into the church from the nations people of every ethnic variety, every tribe, tongue, and nation. All men and women and children. And that we are going out into the world, not out of spiritual pride, 
but out of an understanding that there is no master and king like Christ, and we are saying, you must serve Christ. Now, years ago, um, I spent time with a missionary who was a really close friend of my father's, and he spent a number of years in Africa. And there in Africa, he met a number of different individuals, and he befriended a local mafia Hitman. He was muscle for the local mafia. Uh, and this man was converted to Christ. Um, and even after he had been converted, he still sort of was working on sanctification. And there was one day he was walking around, he was carrying a weapon, like you do if you want to be protected. And he hears a woman being molested in an alley in an African city. And he goes down this alleyway and there's a man who is attacking this woman. He pulls out his sidearm and he puts the gun barrel to his head and he says, accept Christ or die. Now, that is one way um, to fulfill the Great Commission. It is not the way that Christ prescribes. But nonetheless, the choice remains the same. And the offer is, in fact, not so dissimilar from the offer that he made. Kiss the son, the scripture says, lest he be angry with you. And in fact, the choice is even more severe and sobering than the one that that man offered. That man offered physical assault. But the kingdom and the gospel of Christ is what? Embrace Christ and have eternal life in heaven? Or reject Christ and what? Spend eternity in hell. A far more serious punishment than the one that that man was offering to the assailant. That when we go out into the world as a church, what we are presenting to the world is the better way, the best way. It is the way of subjection to the heavenly master who knows all and loves you and desires your good. And so when you go into the world as Christians, you need to know this and you need to walk tall with confidence that what they believe is not the genuine article and it will send them to hell, but what you have to offer them will change their lives for the better and it will result in their eternal good. So when you go out, you go out with your chest puffed up and you go up to them and you tell them the way it is because they don't know the way it is. That is not pride. That is you going forth in the power of grace that you did not deserve, going to a person with the offer of grace that they do not deserve, and you present it to them anyway because God tells us that that is what we should do and that there are people out there who will believe if we go to them and present it to them. We just confessed, as it relates to the Lord's Prayer, that we pray that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. What does that mean? That if we actually get busy, Christ will come back sooner. Parents, you say this to your kids, the room ain't going to clean itself. So what do you say? Just get to work. Every moment you wait is how much longer it takes. We are to enter into the work of bringing in the nations, which is this way of saying that the kingdom of Christ consists in this incredibly large tent of a multitude 
of ethnic people. And those people got into the kingdom through spiritual warfare. And they have just as much a place at the table as you do. Whatever your ethnic background may be, they belong there because they become the children of God. Now as Israel is going out into the world, and they are as an instrument of God's presence on earth prior to the coming of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit, going out into the world, they are bringing the nations into themselves. They are conquering the nations. And if a God-fearing man sees a woman within the city that they are taking conquest of, and he says, well, she's beautiful, I will take her as my wife, what he enters into is essentially a kind of membership class with her. She is brought into his home or in proximity to his home, and this is what happens. If you see among the captives, verse 11, a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house... This is what happens. She enters into, essentially, a communicants class. She enters into a religious conversion ceremony. She shaves her head, she trims her nails, and she takes off those clothes with which she was once captured in and lived in prior to her capture. And she shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother if they were killed for a full month. And then after that, essentially what we have is you go and you become her husband and you perform the husbandly rite. Now this is where feminist Twitter goes bananas and they have no answers as it relates to the book of Deuteronomy. Well, that is just misogyny. Except you forget everything that has come before and everything that comes after. There is this enormous complaint, well, that's just not fair. Well, do you know what the alternative was? Then and now? Do you know what happens now in warfare? Do you know what happens when the nations of this earth, like the Taliban, go into a town? Do you know what happens to those women? They are certainly not treated to hospitality. They... The violence that they suffer? No, what God is saying in the book of Deuteronomy is this. You don't pillage, which means in sort of modern parlance, rape. But you look at her and say, I want her for myself. And then you wed herself to you and you enter into a covenant with her and you make her part of the family. It's not misogyny. It's mercy. And if you cannot understand that, then you do not understand the law of God. How is one nation brought into the nation of Israel? Two ways. You convert and you worship Yahweh, and then you make babies. You make a family. You enter into covenant, and that is how the nations are one to Christ. Israel was not called to be an ethnic Pure people. Look at the church today. It's a hodgepodge. It's a hodgepodge of all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And there is a single qualifier. Whom do you worship? 
Whom do you worship? Now, this sign that she is rejecting her old way of life and her old religion is that she submits to these particular things. If he says, I want you, and she says yes, then she goes through these steps. And she is letting go of that life. And she is saying, I want to enter into your house. But if this man, the husband, or the man who would be her husband, no longer delights in her because she rejects the offer, or she does not move through this process of casting off her old religion, guess what? She goes free. But what does she lose? Well, we don't know exactly. But we do know that if she leaves the covenant community, she does, in fact, give up an enormous amount of blessing. And it is here, in verses 10 through 14, if we read them rightly and understand them properly, that we actually see what Christ does for the church. What's interesting is this. Feminists hate Deuteronomy, but they love the book of Hosea. It's the same thing. God tells the prophet Hosea to do what? To go marry a prostitute. And to make her his bride. And the prostitute did what prostitutes do even after Hosea married her. And what happened? She went back to her old job. And time and again, Hosea went to her, Gomer. On top of it all, her name was Gomer. <laughs> and what Christ was showing Israel is, that's you and that's me. That's Christ in the church. And there is a beautiful section in the book of Hosea. And it is this, it is Christ speaking. It isn't Hosea speaking to Gomer. It is Christ speaking to the church, and what he is saying is this, I'm a faithful husband, you are a faithless bride, but this is what I will do. I will teach you to love me, and I will take the names of idols away from your mouth, and you will no longer prostitute yourself with the things of this world, but I will marry you to me, and I will give you a new heart. This is how marriage is a picture of Christ's redeeming love. And this is how marriage worked in Israel even when the nations are being brought in. And when a faithful man and a faithful woman have gone through these steps and they look at those blessed children that God gives to them, what they can say is this. There was a point in your, your mother's life where she had no fear of God, but worship the idols of this world. She was one of those who went to the temple and sacrificed children to unknown gods. But now, she is a, a queen. She is of royal blood. She is a member of the congregation of God. And this is really where the law drives us. It drives us to the point where we must understand that in every single sense of the word, at one point, we were of another nation, and if it were not for Christ coming to get us, we would be lost in our sins. 
When God came to Abraham, what did he say? He went to Abraham of the Ur of the Chaldeans. Abraham was no God-fearing man until Christ saved him. And he brought him into his house. And he made him his own. And he taught Abraham to loose the names of his foreign gods. What we find here in the middle of this section is a consecration service. It is a consecration service where she is saying, like Ruth, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And in this, Ruth is a picture-perfect Israelite. She was not an Israelite. She was a Moabite. She was not of the seed of Abraham. And yet, in her heart, she had been wed to Christ. And she confessed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, I am an Israelite. And the great picture of our own conversion is marriage itself. And this is how God begins to move from, in some way, the fifth or the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment. From murder to adultery. Or to the promotion of healthy male-female relationships in society and in the church. And of course, there's this point that whatever you do, you don't treat her like a slave. Now, I know wives who go, yeah, right, sweetheart, right? You don't treat me like a slave. They're not property. They're people. And because they were not devoted to destruction, they were free to go. And this is the way in which we should even govern our relationships. That marriage is a partnership of covenant-keeping people devoted to a single good, to the raising up of a holy race, and the to the promotion of the church in all the world. Let's pray.